Hey, everybody, just a quick note before we begin. Uh, later on the podcast, you're going to hear me mispronounce uh, Kamala Harris's name. And uh, when I heard that, it really just, I don't know, it just kind of annoys the crap out of me. So I just wanted to correct that here before the podcast. Uh, so apologies and uh, enjoy the show. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Welcome to another episode of the Cognitive Bias Podcast Live. I'm your host, David Zellin Thomas. And today we have an amazing guest uh, named Eileen Webb. Uh, and before we begin, Eileen had a great suggestion that I don't know why I didn't do more often, uh, which was to do a land acknowledgement at the top of the hour. So, Eileen, would you like to begin? Sure. So, I am calling in from what is currently called Southern Maine, um, about two hours north of Boston. Uh, this is the unceded Donland of the Wabanaki people. Uh, I am in the watershed of two rivers, actually, the Saco and the Presumpscot, which makes the area where I live the traditional territory of the Pequot people and the Akosisco. Um, and I am actually in uh, Media, Pennsylvania, which is unceded land from the Lenape people. And if anyone, so first of all, if anyone's curious, like who were the, who, who, whose house you're invading right now, um, I just typed in the uh, uh, website that'll kind of help you know kind of the original inhabitants of any particular place you might live. So if you want to put your own land acknowledgements into the chat, please do. Uh, so I'm curious, I first ran across land acknowledgements when I attended a data and society event um, with uh, Sasha Costa, the, um, the writer of Design Justice and um, part of the Design Justice Network. So it kind of blew my mind because I'd never heard of that before. And it was one of those things when you hear about it, it like immediately makes sense. But I'm curious, Eileen, like where did you first encounter it? And for those who don't know, like what is a land acknowledgement and what is it meant to uh, do? Um, so I first encountered it. I don't know. I don't remember the first, but I remember it was sort of like three things at once mm. um, of I heard a number of podcasts that were recorded in Australia and Tasmania and New Zealand, which is where this practice really started with the Aboriginal peoples there. Um, I mean, among many other places, but that's sort of like one of the modern places you can try and you know, trace it back to. And so I, and I heard those. And around the same time, I went to the design and content conference in Vancouver and they opened with a land acknowledgement um, and and yeah, it was one of those things where as I heard it, I was just like, oh yes, this makes so much sense. Um, and uh, like for me, it is, so like I'm a strategist, right? Like I, I, I work with um, all kinds of different organizations, but like part of doing strategy work is being willing to name what is. And I feel like, like what is in the US is that we are all living on stolen land right? Like this is stolen land. And if we, like when we pretend that's not true, how can we have genuine conversations? How can we create authentic connection? How can we create relationships? How can we, how can we make systemic change if we're not even willing to name what is, what is uh, at the base of that? And I think it's also really important to like the way, at least in the U.S. school system that we are taught about like Native peoples is, is as a historical fact. If you get taught stuff at all, it is history, right? It's like, it's the past. It's not present anymore, but all of these people are still here, right? I mean, white people have done their best to genocide them, but like, they're still here and naming them and acknowledging their rights to these land, I feel like is a, a really important piece of acknowledging that they're they are in the middle of active struggles for civil rights and for uh, restitution and for all kinds of things that they are, that, you know, that are theirs by right. Yeah, and, and, I, and pretend it aren't. And it's one of those things where words frame things in very concrete ways. Where if you don't say them, you, you don't get that. Because I think ever since I started, you know, doing them, I became very aware of this notion that we're all in the middle of an ongoing home invasion that's been just generationally passed down from generation to generation. And it's a very different paradigm, you know, for the United States. And I love, there was a, there was a quote on a recent episode of Fargo where one of the characters says, the reason America loves crime stories is because America is a crime story. And I was like, oh, you, you just spilled all of America's tea right there. <laughs> yep. Um, so, so with that framing, um, uh, first off, uh, we didn't get a chance to say, who you are and what you get into. So Eileen, tell us about yourself. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
So I am, um, I don't know, I'm so many things, kind of all at once. Who are you today? Uh, <laughs> who am I today? Today, uh, so I'm a content strategist in the, in the tech world. I'm a content strategist. Um, and so I have a background in programming. And so like I used to like build the back end like systems that run websites. Um, and so I really focus on like the structured content and the information architecture and the sort of like that intersection of the technology and the structure and the sort of strict stuff with the, the humans that actually have to run it. Um, and I'm a consultant. So I like, I don't work on one team. I work on lots and lots of different teams. I sort of drop in and out of lots of projects. Um, and then the other sort of piece of my life is that I'm an apprentice with, uh, with an institute called the Luna Jimenez Institute for Social Transformation, which is run uh, out of Portland, Oregon by Nancy Luna Jimenez. And it's, um, I mean, it's a, the simplest sort of bucket to put them in would be like, DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion work, but it is, it's a body of work that is framed around um, sort of personal healing and authentic relationships as the key to making systemic change. Systems are made up of people. If you want to fix a system, you have to fix a people. So that's a, that's a really interesting notion because I think a, we're only beginning to even reckon with systems, right. As, as a, as a cause of things, yeah. right. The, especially here, um, we like to think of individuals as the creators of everything. Um, it's a very easy myth to believe in. And increasingly, we're starting to talk about, you know, the reason uh, racism has been so hard to talk about is because we think of racism as the act of individual racists and not, we don't define it as a system, right? Yeah. And so it's been hard enough just to get ahead around systems. When I think of systems, I think of computers and wires and flowcharts. And just the last thing I think of is people. So can you describe like what a what the humanity of a system is. Cause I, even I have trouble picturing a human being the agency within a system or humans sure. being the agency in the system. I mean, if you think of like the smallest system as being a family, mm. it's pretty easy to think how humans are like that system is made up of people, right? You couldn't have a family without the people in it. And like when you scale it bigger, it doesn't get less true. Mm. It becomes slightly more abstract and in but like but it's the same thing right i mean if you think about sort of maybe uh like a mid-sized system like a company that has you know 100 people in it or an organization um and the the effect that something like an hr policy can have or the effect that a plain language policy could have on you know and especially the ripple effect right not just the effect within that system but the ripple effect of like Oh, all of the people, I mean, for example, we just did a land acknowledgement. How many people hearing this, that was their first land acknowledgement. And they had that aha moment that you and I had when we heard it a couple of years ago, which was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And like those things to me, like systems are big and systems do feel, they feel big, but I actually think it serves, I almost think like it is a, it's to the service of the oppression that we think of them as big and not people, mm -hmm. right? That we think of them as being something so large we couldn't possibly. How could we ever have an effect? But actually, like, you make a change in your org, and that has an effect on the org and all the people the org touches. You make a change in your family, and it changes your family and also your extended family at, like, it's the same thing with school systems, with government systems, with economic systems, it's all ripple effects. Yeah. And that, what you say like makes sense to me in that a while ago I had this, you know, insight or observation. I was talking to a bunch of folks who were in uh, TEDx prison program. So TEDx, for those of you who don't know, there's like, you know, TEDx New York or TEDx Cincinnati. There's also TEDx Attica and TEDx, you know, Folsom. Um, the amazing work that's being done there where you have, you know, incarcerated people who are the TED speakers. And a couple of the folks there, um, I forget who it was, some, you know, muckety-muck in San Francisco, uh, <laughs> uh, like went to this and started speaking to incarcerated people as human beings and got to know them as human beings. And um, a couple of the folks who spoke eventually got out. These are people who were, you know, uh, had lifetime sentences and that never happens. Um, but it was that human relationship, right, that undermined the system in that case. And I started to have this notion that maybe 
it seems like relationships undermine systems. And maybe that's because the system is, is people. <laughs> like it, it makes sense that that would be one of its vulnerabilities. Well, and if you, if you let yourself put people above the system, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you let the relationship be more important than the three steps that we have written down and documented, then, then what you end up with is a, it, you know, is a setup where, where we care about each other as people first, where we mm -hmm. let our relationships and our care for each other drive what we are doing as opposed to budgets or schedules or calendars or any of the other things that we usually let drive what we are doing. And I feel like the motivation to turn something into a system is to scale that. Like you hear that word scale and that almost inevitably means, oh, if you want to scale this, well, we need a system. And when we say system in that context, we usually are talking about, well, we're going to need a policy. We're going to need a code. We're going to need an algorithm, right? We're going to need, you know, um, and I wonder if, because what I wonder about is when do we go from perceiving the system as or, or the system being something that is about human beings getting together to accomplish something to the system kind of taking over. And now we feel we are serving it. And I think very much of, um, I, I was reading like these memoirs of a woman who was writing to, I think her fiance sort of had gotten out of France, uh, but she was still there during Vichy France. And she was talking about her interactions with some of the Nazis there. And some of them, she said, seems like they were just going through the motions of a war. Like they, they had no dog in the fight of you know dominating uh, or the master race or any of that they were just sort of like i guess this is my job now and i guess i'm supposed to be mean to you and like and she I encountered that soldiers right and, and and so like when do we go from it actually being humans trying to be human to like is there like a tipping point where it's like oh i guess this is me now i mean i don't know that there's like a common tipping point across everything but i think it's when we stop learning and moving and making decisions from our values Mm -hmm. It's when we let the things that we have written down be more important than our values. And it's not that we like would never write things down or document them. Mm -hmm. Like the work that we do at Logist, we have like a, a sort of a big team spread across a bunch of different places. And so who is going to be on any particular delivery or like sort of, you know, delivering a particular workshop and who's going to be behind the scenes doing logistics and all that kind of stuff. It changes, right. Just based on people's schedules and, um, and so we have tons of documentation, right? We have like, we have these roles guides for like what it means to be a logistics manager on Zoom versus what it means to be a logistics manager for an in-person workshop, which obviously we're not doing right now. Um, it's not that we don't have documentation, you know, and that we don't, we aren't aiming for consistency. We want people to have a beautifully consistent experience, you know, no matter which trainer is delivering the workshop, that kind of thing. Um, but but those are only ever guides. And because what's really important is that we are moving from our values, right? Mm -hmm. And like, and I was actually earlier this week teaching a workshop and there were a few times I wasn't teaching. I was sorry. I was logisticking, right? I was like managing mm -hmm. breakout rooms in the background and whatnot. Um, and there were a couple times where it was like, the right thing to do for the participant for, you know, there was a person who was having a tech problem and mm -hmm. like the documented thing to do was sort of in conflict with my value of making that person feel cared about and heard and listened and paid attention to. And so that's where I moved from. Mm. Like, I don't care what the documentation says. What this person needs to feel heard right now is X. And so I do X. And, and you know, we talk about it later and maybe we update the documentation, but like, it's all context, right? There's this, it's a thing we do in the U.S. in particular, we pretend that context doesn't matter, right? We really, really like to pretend that like, you know, that like, oh, it wasn't offensive when you said that because I wouldn't have been offended. And it's like, yeah, but you have a totally different cultural context for me. Like it's, you know, but we pretend that doesn't matter. Uh, but like in all kinds of situations, small and large, if you let the context be part of your assessment, then sometimes you will do what the documentation says and sometimes you will do what is sort of right from your value system because you realize that like that's more important than the documentation right now. Yeah, it reminds me of a phrase my therapist uses a lot, which is cognitive flexibility. And it's, and it's very much about being able to move from your values. And what it reminds me of is, you know, my background is in filmmaking. 
And I am a very prepared filmmaker. Part of that comes from being a low budget filmmaker. Like you can't do four takes. You don't have that much time. You got to do it in two, which means you have to have a plan. So I storyboard, I have, I know all my shots before I get on the on the scene, like everything is perfectly mapped out. However, what I learned on my first shoot was if I'm about to shoot something and my actor has a better idea for how the scene should go, I'm going to do it because it's a better idea. Like if it's logistically doable at the time we have, I'm like, well, throw out that storyboard. Let's do this. Or the constraints might change and one of our lights might blow out. And it's like, okay, I have to do this with what can be filmed in close-ups because there's only enough light for close-ups. I guess we're doing this now, right? So I, I agree. I feel like there's a great power in having the documentation for this is if nothing else comes up, right? This is what we're going to do. Like, if we can't think of anything else to say, we're going to say this. It's kind of like us right now having this conversation. Like, we have a document in Google Docs that's like, here's, if nothing else comes up, we're going to talk about this. Exactly. But if we start talking about land acknowledgments and we get off this really cool thread, well, we're going to do that. I'm not going to say, whoa, 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 Eileen. We we didn't talk about saying we were going to talk about systems, (laughs) right? So, and, and so that feels very comfortable for me. And, and that, that, that's kind of the, the question I think I have under this is how do we build in a way? So it sounds like what you're saying is it isn't about having documentation or not having documentation. It's about your relationship as humans in that system to the documentation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So now I am going to go to the fallback. <laughs> um, and Okay, so one of the questions, we, we kind of um, collaborate on questions here, and one of the things you threw, and I don't know if this is a question maybe for both of us, is to what extent are cognitive biases the results of fear and hurt, right? A microversion of pattern behavior. So is this a question you had for me or just a topic you wanted to discuss? I think because I think there's a lot of there there. So I, so I was reading the book, right? Oh, I, I had already read a bunch of it, but I was like, <laughs> I should read more of this because I'm talking to David tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I was reading through, and like, and it's so it's like popcorn for a brain like mine. <laughs> like it, I'm, it's just like all these delightful little tidbits. I'm like, Oh my God, I got to make things rhyme. And then people will remember them. <laughs> delightful for me. Um, and, and some of the things like the part where um, like the left to right readers have left to right sense of time on a page, right. That feels like, just a funky, weird human brain shortcut. Like, cool. And then there are other things where, like, like in-group bias, right, and confirmation bias and things like that, where they felt to me, especially because the way that you can counter them is to get people to slow down, they felt to me like places, they felt like defensive behavior. Like, and not just efficient behavior but defensive behavior like how can i keep myself from getting hurt and places where we are defensive tend to be places where we have been hurt in the past right um and that doesn't have to be like giant trauma that can be small trauma right that can be sort of um you know the level of like tripped on a sidewalk and kids laughed at me when i was five you know which is not that's like not big t trauma uh, if you're going to use like, you know, mental health terms for it, but like, it's, it is a thing that happened that hurts. And then because we live in a super emotionally repressive society, it, the thing happens, you, people make fun of you. If you cry about it, you suppress it. Right. But like, and so it, the, it's just so many of the little biases as I was reading through them, I was like, oh, this doesn't sound like cute brain quirk. This sounds to me like you got hurt at some point around this and developed this shortcut and like embedded it so deep in your brain. We do it with like big patterns all the time, right? In terms of like, we do it with like, like I'm a person who plans ahead, right? Like I, like I'm not an all-nighter at all. I'm like, I have things done a week in advance and it's because I don't want to get yelled at for not having the, right? Like there's a hole, there's a hole there, there, right? Like I have a lot behind that. Um, and so these almost felt like tiny, like Pico versions of like not big behaviors, but just like little places where the brain was like, ooh, ooh, skip that assessment. Just make this choice. 80% of the time that will get you less hurt. Yeah, there's, uh, first off, I think about 50% of my life can be chalked up to, I don't want to get yelled at. Um, yeah. <laughs> I am Yo, a super non-confrontational, I... right? Um but yeah, I th- so I think you're absolutely right. And I think, honestly, 
I would be hard pressed to find a bias where there isn't at least a little bit of that defensive behavior. Because even the you know stuff that feels like it's just oh this is kind of a weird thing to read from left to right you're going to do time from left to right that just saves time right that just that, that that's an easy to process thing which at some point it became clear either evolutionarily or in your life that things that save time save lives things that save time save energy things that save time mean that i can go hunt more gather more breed more whatever i would whatever. even say things that save time save me yes yeah and there is this underlying, if you're still here, it's because your ancestors had DNA that probably edge leans towards self-preservation behavior. It's just math, <laughs> right? It's entirely possible that you are not risk averse, but it's going to be in the minority. Um, so even those behaviors, but I agree at any point, like you could almost, if you think about like, again, taking it back to storytelling about setup and payoff, right? Some of the best screenplays, the best stories. It's like, oh, that pays off on this thing that happened in act one. If you think about your life right now, like your life leading up to this is act one and every single thing that happens today is payoff, right? It's like, oh, there's that childhood trauma in act one. Oh, and here you see that payoff and how they're avoiding, you know, they're not putting, they're not considering themselves uh, eligible for this job because they don't quite fit the requirements because of the, pe the people who yelled at them. And then, and I, I'm, trying, I'm, I'm trying to tie systems into this as well, but I feel like the systems that we have sometimes are the setup <laughs> and sometimes the payoff, right? Like, I think very much, I'd be curious to hear your take on this. I think when I think about people who, um, you know, vote for Trump or just vote authoritarian, and there's literally evidence now that um, how you view parenting has a lot to do with how you view authoritarianism. Um, and if you are like odds are, if you're an authoritarian parent, you're going to be in favor of authoritarianism, or if you were parented in a way that was authoritarian, depending on your reaction to that, because some people react to the opposite, right, right? They flip the pattern. Right. But however, and I think you kind of put your finger on it, which whatever worked, right. I think yes. that is the sort of, if evolutionary biology is all psychology is all, here's what worked for our ancestors. And that's why we are the way now for those little Pico things. I think it's, well, here's what worked for me as a child. Here's how I got to stay alive as a child, and I'm not going to let go of that. <laughs> like I'm that, that I'm, the reason I'm still you? doing it. What's that? Like, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, that makes and that makes a total sense to me. But but the, the thing I wonder then when I look at sort of oppressive systems, which again are people, I think who hurt you, right? So I think of the behaviors in the African American community, and it's very clear who hurt you, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but then I think about like, okay, slavery or whoever thought it was okay to, I know how we'll make money. We'll go to a faraway land and kill everybody and take their shit. Who hurt them? <laughs> well, so everyone gets hurt, right? Everyone gets hurt. Like you can be born into the richest, most like fanciful family in the whole world. And you still, as a young person, are going to get your feelings tonight. And you're still going to have people tell you that you're making mountains out of molehills. And you're still going to have people tell you that like, that you're asking for too much and that you're going to have people want you to be quiet when you're trying to share something like that's, that's how we do childhood. And that's how we've been doing childhood for a really long time, right? Is that, is that children are lesser people. We don't even really call them people. We call them kids. That's a name for goats, right? Mm. Like that's what we call the young people in our lives. We call them a goat name, literally. Yeah. And like, when you're hurt, as soon as you get power, some sort of power, any sort of power, you're going to start using it because that's how you survive. Right. Like, and, and I don't, I don't mean that in like a judgment blamey way. I just like, we want to survive. And if you're in a position, if you were like a white man in an upper class family, you're, you have a lot of power when you come into your power, right. You have, you have a lot of groups that you could shit on. Um, but everyone can shit on other people in their own groups. Oh yeah. Everyone can internalize the oppression and turn it against themselves and start doing terrible. I mean, how many of us make decisions? Hi, 
says the person who like has four things of delicious ice cream in my freezer, despite the fact that if I eat ice cream at night, I will sleep terribly, wake up terribly and have a whole next day that is terrible. Like the pull to sugar is so, so strong that even though I know it's not good for me, I still do it. Like that's internalized oppression, right? Mm. I don't drink motor oil because that's further <laughs> along the line for me. But sugar is like well on the side of the line where I'm like, I know this is bad for me and I'm still doing it. And so like we turn it against ourselves. We turn it against other people in the group, right? Like, because when people talk about like, oh, kids are so cruel. Kids aren't cruel. Like kids have been hurt. There's not like no little person is born into the world wanting to hurt someone else, wanting to oppress anyone else, right? Like two-year-olds are just like, let's like share belly buttons and like, let's like look at each other's toes and let's go play. And like, there's no, there's not cruelty there, right? But at some point you get a little bit of power and what is safest is to use that power to like sort of keep someone else slower than you. And so then you get like, then you get like first grade and then you get like, ooh, middle school girls, whew, right? Middle school girls who are coming into like the brunt of receiving sexism. They're coming into like the, the terribleness of being in a school system that, you know, like, and little boys have this too. But once you add in like, once you add in the, the morass of puberty, like, no wonder middle school girls start being mean to each other. Like, no wonder that's become a cultural trope because it's like 11 oppressions start coming down on you just like hard and you have nowhere to turn. Who does an 11-year-old girl have power over? No one except other 11-year-old girls. If she can be stronger than them or faster than them or snarkier than them or, you know, can use words as weapons, you can use sticks as weapons, like... So I feel like if you look at anyone who's authoritarian or anyone who has like been in a position to make terrible decisions, like it feels to me like it's in some ways for me personally, it's almost easier to see the hurt in someone who like, I look at like President Trump and it's not like I'm like sympathetic and like, come here, buddy, let me give you a hug. But he, he's so obviously hurt, like so hurt. It comes through, it like, it leaks in literally every word he says, every, every time I, I have the misfortune of hearing something he has said on TV or whatever, like it comes through so strongly because it's just like, it's almost like his primary thing as he moves through the world. It's actually much harder for me with like smaller things, like local folks who are like, you know, wanting to vote against a school funding bill or something where I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> People are terrible. Um, so yeah, I mean, everyone's been hurt. Yeah. And it's funny too. Like I make that distinction as well. It's like, I hate Trump in as much as I'm able to muster hate in what is otherwise hopefully loving heart, but I'm never disappointed in him. Right. I never, I'm never like, Oh, really, Trump? It's always like, yeah, it's pretty much what I expected. <laughs> yeah. Versus some of the people you're talking about. It's like even, even Kamala, who I am I 100% voted for and 100% want the best for, if I look back at a record, I'm like, oh, really, Kamala? I, you could have done better than that, right? Like, like it's, it's a disappointment because it's an expectation, right? You sort of have these – it's a difference in how you're expecting people, people to behave in their context. But you're right. Everybody has been hurt. And I think you make a really good point about um, power – because if you've been hurt and you come into a little bit of power, the amount of damage you can cause is somewhat limited. If you've been hurt and you can come into a great amount of power, like the greatest naval force the world has ever seen, or, you know, <laughs> um, you know, or even like CEO of an organization with a couple hundred employees. Yeah. Especially if you didn't expect it. Right. Like I think very much about the archetype rock star who goes from zero to nothing in a year and suddenly has all this power and just self-destructs. Like, that's a trope. Um, and I think in retrospect, we're going to apply that to some of these tech CEOs. Because, you know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't wake up thinking, I am going to be a billionaire. 
Like the, the name of the book was literally The Accidental Billionaires. Sure. But here's a person who probably got hurt <laughs> and probably was caring a lot of her who was suddenly wielding a ton of power and had this image of themselves. And again, I think this is a Silicon Valley trope, an image of themselves as this humanitarian libertarian. And why would I need ethics? And this is kind of another theme here. Why would I need ethics um, training? Why would I need any kind of like, you know, anyone to consult me on this? I am an ethical person. Uh, and I think that's something else we bring to the table when we are living through these traumas, living through these defense mechanisms is when we start building products, we don't think to ourselves anything we're doing is wrong. We don't think to ourselves that there's anyone to consult on that. I might need help with some content strategy or with some UX or some dev work because I don't know code, but no one thinks, well, I don't know ethics. I need help with that. Yeah, I mean, we're fundamentally, uh, I mean, here's the secret trick, like, we're all good people mm. like underneath it all. And there is some part of us that tracks that there's a little piece. And like some people, like some people lose sight of it really early and some people, some people keep it in some aspects of their life. You know, they'll keep it in regards to their art or in regards to music or in regards to child rearing or something along those lines. Um, but like, but we all, we all sort of think that we are doing, we, I think the, the funny thing is that we know that we're doing the best we can. Yeah. And the fact that the context changes, right. And that like, if the best we can comes with a bunch of like historical context that you should be aware of that you're not aware of the best you can, can still hurt people, right. Best you can do can still the the intent doesn't have to be bad for the impact to be really hard and really difficult for people. And like, until we actually create places and sort of practices and things where people actually get to discharge all the ways they were hurt when they were young, then it just, it's patterns that keep repeating themselves. Yeah. I, um, I want to make sure we talk a bit about ableism because the first our first encounter was I saw you give an amazing talk at Design and Content Conference, or no, it's Content, I believe, um, about um, ableism. And you kind of unpacked it in a way where it's like, oh, you just pointed something out that I didn't realize was actually ableism. But now that you frame it that way, I'm like, that's 100% ableism. So I want to give you a moment to talk a little bit about that, like the ways ableism shows up in ways that we don't usually think of as ableism and what we can kind of do about it. Sure. So um, I'm one of those people who like, who has done the little bit of accessibility work in tech just enough that I like remember to ask the questions all the time. And I'm like, hey, are we doing alt tags on these? Like, hey, ARIA roles, like, yo, I have just enough of the vocabulary around it to, to be the person who brings it up all the time. Um, and what I noticed, and like I said, I'm a consultant, so I work in lots of different teams on lots of different projects. What I noticed over and over was that people, even when they would say organizationally, like that this is a high priority, that this is really important to us, it like, even when it wasn't an afterthought, it was sort of an afterthought, right? It was like treated like a, I don't know, like an add-on, an add-on that we're putting high priority on, but still an add-on. Uh, and I sort of started to trace that through and I was like, what's going on? Like, why is, why does this keep happening? And then I, I also have a chronic medical condition. And so I started noticing the similarities between the ways people were talking about how we were doing really strict scheduling things and how we were, you know, like requiring people to work over lunches and we were expecting that they would be available on nights and weekends and things like that. And that like the teams where that was the message were also the teams that were having accessibility problems in their like, in the sort of implementation of their code and in the way they were building their sites, which makes a lot of sense to me because you can't, it's all connected, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you can't, uh, you can't build a truly accessible product if you have a team that doesn't have any disabled people on it. Mm -hmm. You can't work in healthcare and build a really great hospital site if everyone on your team is fully able-bodied and has never dealt with a chronic illness, right? Like. And, and that's some about inclusion and representation and getting voices in the room. And it's also some about the ways that we let 
capitalism and scheduling and project management um, just reinforce things where like only the able-bodied can really succeed in those systems. Mm -hmm. And so of course there's not inclusion and of course there's not representation because like you set up a thing where people need to be able to work on nights and weekends. And so people who can't do that for so many reasons, right? Like people might not be able to do that because they have, you know, families and lives outside of work. They might not be able to do it because they need to use that time for physical therapy. They might not be able to do it because like with so many autoimmune disorders, keeping your stress under like, you know, under a particular threshold and therefore not working on nights and weekends is like the only way you can manage your flare-ups. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, it just sort of came, it came mostly from like looking at accessibility work and then seeing how like the structure of teams was or wasn't enforcing that and the ways that we set up our projects, the ways that we managed our calendars and the, all kinds of things. Yeah, and, and one of the things that really struck me in your talk was this notion of even when we kind of reward or celebrate self-reliance, like A, you're, a, you're a team player, and then be like the sort of like, oh, you just got all this stuff done. You're like, and, and even I think even phrases like Rockstar and Ninja kind of like amplify this myth, but that's sort of like, hey, you don't need anybody. You can just get it done. And I even like fall victim to this. I get like how that seems appealing, but something you pointed out that never occurred to me is if you do that, it is often at the cost of encouraging or celebrating asking for help, right? Which able-bodied or not, that is just from somebody who studies bias. If you don't ask for help, you are going to miss something, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I think that's an interesting aspect of it that, that we don't always consider. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's, that's, that's something that I learned directly from my apprenticeship with, um, with Nancy and Logist is that like when we're in a meeting, if there are three people in a meeting, the person who is running the Zoom does not also take notes. Mm right? Even if the notes are really going to be hers for later, you know, like she's the person who's going to use the notes. Like this is a place where we, you know, we have sort of a, I want to say policy and it's not like a hard and fast rule, but like a general sort of policy and approach that like, if there are three jobs to do in a meeting and there are three people, you split them up. Like if someone is, you know, sort of running through the agenda and facilitating a meeting, they shouldn't also be managing breakout rooms, right? It's just like, and even, it's actually more powerful to me at the small level like that mm -hmm. than it is at the giant level. Because at the giant level, it's sort of easier to understand. It's like, oh, if you run an entire magazine, you know, like, or you, you know, are in charge of an entire like product development, you know, tree or whatever, like that for me is easier to be like, yeah, you should ask for help with that. Like your product would be better if there were more people involved and if you didn't carry it all on your shoulders, et cetera, et cetera. But at the small level of like, oh no, I could do all of this myself. I, you know, like I can run a meeting and do breakout rooms and share my screen with the, you know, with the mural on it. Like I can do all three of those at once, but like, but when you, it's not just that you make it sort of easier for the person who's hosting, which is, you know, one thing. Um, but it's also that you, it's like you foster collaboration mm. and you create connections between the people who are in the meeting or who are taking notes for each other. Like you have to pay attention to, to each other at a different level to know what kind of notes do you need for me to take? Right. Mm. And like, what kind of, what kind of help can I give you that would be most supportive right now in these small spaces? Um, and it makes the connection stronger. So then when we're doing something that is bigger, it's like that relationship is really strong. The foundations are there because we've been helping each other in all these little ways. Yeah, and what I like about that is it also, it fosters collaboration and communication, right? Because if I take it upon myself to do all of the things, I never have to talk to anybody. Right. And the likelihood that I'm going to do all those things in a way that's supportive to all of the people is not very high. Whereas if everybody's doing stuff, we have to talk to each other, especially if you're doing stuff for each other. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, I want to read one of the, the questions here. Uh, when you're trying to shift an organization system towards more focus on values, 
how do you deal with an overemphasis on statistics and graphs that do not reflect your ethics, values, et cetera? Hope that makes sense. I think it makes sense. Do you think it makes sense? I do think it makes okay. sense. And it ties very nicely into the the little, there's a part in your book where you talk about that the things that you can measure, sometimes mm. inversely so, the things that are easiest to measure are the least valuable for measuring. Um, and that sometimes the things that are most important to measure are hard to figure out how to measure. And a lot of values stuff sits in that space, right? Because like, if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to say like that, uh, that people's growth on a project is the most important value of project success is the most important measure. Like, how do you measure that? And like a lot of the ways we measure fall back to things that are problematic in themselves, right? They're reductionist measurements are by definition reductionist. And so like, I mean, it's an interesting question about like, if you've got a reductionist set of data in front of you, how do you help people? It's basically like, to me, the question is not like, it's almost how do you make people care about it less, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not how do you fix it or how do you like get better data? It's how do you make people care about people over data? Which, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I have no idea what the answer is to that. Um, I think it depends on where you are in the organization, like leadership wise, you know, whether you're, whether you're leading from within or leading from above on the hierarchy. Um, because that feels to me like what you, what you need is agreement. What you mm. need is alignment, right? And to be just very straightforward of like, here's, here are the things that we believe are most important. You know, we are trying to help patients or we, and, or we are, you know, we want to create a work environment where people feel cared and supported for. And like, and that you, you definitely have to do check-ins and things, but you may just have to have an agreement among all the people who are sort of in a position of power in that particular setup that like, this isn't going to be easy to measure. But if you really care about it, you will, right? I mean, you, you'll, you'll, you'll decide to do that anyway. If people don't care about it, then they'll be like, ah, you know, but we really need a number. And, and or they care about it, but they have conflicting, you know, they care about it, but they also care about their grant requirements. Um, and like, I can't like give you an answer because it's contextual, right? Oh, context. Yeah. Oh, well, it's, it's always it's, there. <laughs> Stupid context. Well, it's contextual and it's feeling too, right? Like we were in a Q&A the other day and I think you, someone was sort of asking for, you know, like, hey, what should I read or what should I do? Like sort of like uh, for a particular problem. And, and you kind of had a very interesting answer around, well, some of this isn't intellectual. Some of it is about feeling and emotion. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the things, when we're talking about values, right? And are we adhering to our values? That's usually not an intellectual discussion. That's usually a emotional conversation. Yes. I think part of the problem with measuring these things is it really comes down to trust and vulnerability and just talking about it and getting a read. Like, like you said, I think you have the right word there, agreement. Do we agree that this course of action or that course of action aligns with our values? In retrospect, do we agree that the outcome aligns with what we wanted, right? And I feel like the metrics can be like, color in that conversation, little, little pepper, a yeah. little spice, but at the end of the day, and I hate to put it this way because I feel like you go down the other wrong path. I don't want to say it's your gut because your gut is full of those patterns that often come from oppression. <laughs> it's more, I think, of how do we align? I think you put it right the first time. How do we align around our values? And that, I feel like you're right. I think that has just to be a discussion with the people with decision-making power. And I think who you invite to that discussion, I think there's a lot of room to be subversive there and yeah. to like change how we do things there. Um, who gets to decide, are we aligned with our values? That I think is some really interesting place to play in. But I agree, like the harder something is to measure, the more valuable it probably is. Yeah, yeah. And like, there's also in the realm of sort of naming what is, part of that conversation also needs to be like, if this is our value, mm -hmm. what are, where are the places we are likely to encounter friction with mm. sort of larger cultural movements, right? Mm. Where are we going to run up against capitalism? 
right? It can be your value to do, uh, you know, you could have a value that involves sort of manifests as a lot more time off for people. How do you balance that against, you know, the need for like that you have clients who have budgets and who would like to get things done by a certain date, right? And like, there's not one answer there, but in, but you sort of have to, you can't pretend those conversations aren't going to happen or pretend that those frictions and those roadblocks aren't going to come up just because you decide to be value-based. That's not like, that's not the end, right? That's the beginning of the conversation. Yeah. And then, and then there's this whole journey and the more you can be thoughtful about things in the beginning and the more people you bring to the table, then you can have more and more perspectives, right? Then, then at least you're likely to like, when one of those things pops up that like, even if you don't have the answer on hand because you're waiting for the context, mm. um, at least maybe you have some a little bit of sense, right? Of like, okay, like oh, we knew this was going to happen. Here are some things we might try. Here are some questions to ask ourselves when we get there. Yeah, and you bring up something that Erica Hall said recently around a good designer needs to have the tools to interrogate capitalism or something to that effect. And that was... Uh, that started a nice little shitstorm on Twitter, but um, <laughs> but I find that fascinating and accurate, and I'm you know I'm wondering, like, how do you bring that up in a kickoff? <laughs> you know what's funny is that I do bring that up in kickoffs. All awesome. <laughs> uh, I mean, it helps that I mostly work with like progressive orgs. Sure. So, all right. <laughs> like, I, I don't think it would work to go into like a Schwab office and do that. <laughs> Probably. Um, you know, one of the things that I had been thinking about recently a lot because, so I, like as part of my work sort of traditionally, I like, I do a lot of information architecture, right? I build IA and I build content models and I build sitemaps and like, you know, there's a lot of spreadsheets in my life, which I love a spreadsheet. Um, but I've been thinking a lot recently about like how I, I also do pretty universally like I'm pretty grumpy that like I won't do a project unless I can do discovery workshops mm -hmm. like I you know and I won't even sort of let other people do discovery workshops like I, I need to do the discovery mm -hmm. workshop um which is slightly controlling but fine uh I'm a consultant it's fine um, <laughs> I want a t-shirt that says that <laughs> it's fine uh but one of the things that I have realized out of that is that the value that the discovery brings is like maybe, I don't know, 20% that we get some really good conversations and we got some good answers and is like 80% that we create relationships mm. with our team and their team, but also among their team, right? Because so often part of what I do in discovery is I'm like, you know, this is not just project leadership. We need project leadership. We need interns. We need your customer support people. We need, you know, we need people from across the organization. It's like one of my rules of discovery is that like, we can't just have the people that are like the web team. It doesn't, it's like not okay with me. We need to have more voices. The people that actually have to implement the strategy, they mm -hmm. need to be in the room, right? Yeah. Like the writers, the the people who answer the phones when an angry customer calls, mm -hmm. like the service delivery people, you know, like, you know, the grant writers, all the things. Um, and that means that people often come into those meetings, meeting their colleagues for the first time. Yeah. Right. Or like they've met, but they've never like worked on a thing together because it's like, well, I work in the finance office and you are like a, you know, a, a something else, like a widget delivery person who works on the ground in one of our shelters. And it's like, and creating those relationships is what, I mean, A, relationships are what destroy capitalism, mm -hmm. right? Caring about other people and valuing other people above money and calendars is what destroys capitalism. Um, but also it helps build the trust, right? That when we all have relationships with each other, that we believe that we have each other's best interests at heart. Yeah. Because you can't, you can't believe that someone has your best interest at heart if you've only ever met them for like two minutes and you've never had a good conversation with them and you've never like worked through a problem with them. Yeah. Um, but the more relationships that we have and the sort of more authentic connections we have, the better chance we have of 
prioritizing the people above the system. Yeah, and there's, I think there's a very direct line between trust and progressive systems. I was talking to a friend of mine in Norway, and she was saying that folks in Scandinavia index extremely high on the question, do you think people are basically good? And it is impossible to create a welfare state <laughs> if you think everyone's out to get you. <laughs> yeah. And it is very easy to create uh, cronyism if you think everyone's out to get you. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, there's a reason that people genuinely admire Trump when he says, yeah, I got away without paying taxes. That's a good thing. Like people genuinely see that as a benefit because taxes are something that goes to people. And if you don't think people are good, you don't want them to go to them. You know? yeah. um, I think that's really powerful. Before we, before we close, I do want to make sure we touch on another, I think, related topic, which is this idea that um, oppressive systems, and I want to I talk about the language here, because I originally wrote a question, hey, let's talk about how oppressive systems are bad, not just for the oppressed. And you sort of uh, suggested more nuance in the term to rather than say the oppressed, talk about the people who are targets of oppression. And I, I want to talk about that language choice, because I think it's important, but then, you know, actually answer the question or discuss the question, you know, how does oppression hurt everybody? Yeah, so that's something that I directly learned from my mentor, Nancy Luna Jimenez, um, who I think learned it from her mentor, Lillian Roybal Rose, um, who worked out of California for a long time. She's retired now. And the idea there is that, like, I mean, oppression sucks for everyone. And one of the sort of lines we say sometimes in our workshops are that um, all oppressions demean all people equally. Mm which is a hard thing for a lot of people to swallow. And it like feels weird, feels squiggly going down, right? Like it's a little, it's a little itchy maybe. Um, but if we think about the idea that you can't rate pain, right? That you mm -hmm. can't like, you, it doesn't make sense to rank pain, right? Like in that does, um, you know, a white girl in an abusive household have it easier or harder than a black man in a loving household you mm -hmm. know like you like you can't do that kind of ranking and it doesn't make any sense it doesn't sort of get us anything mm -hmm. but if you say that like everyone has pain from like everyone has places where they are the targets of oppression mm -hmm. um and even if you think you don't you were at some point a young person right? And you were targeted by the adults in your life, not by like your parents trying to be monsters, but by a system that doesn't care about young people. Uh, and, and so part of the idea there is that like, you know, there's a, it's, it's become a pretty common term in the last few years to talk about toxic masculinity, right? Which is the cost to men of sexism, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, men are not allowed to be soft. They're not allowed to show their emotions. There's this sense of like, there's all sorts of wonderful, beautiful things about being a man, but there's also a whole bunch of cost that comes from making sure you don't ever look like anything girly, mm -hmm. right? That comes from like, you know, I mean, even thinking of just of like the simple phrase of like, oh, you throw like a girl, right? Mm -hmm. Like baseball, kind of like playing catch when you're like seven, that even then there's the sense that like, oh, if you want to be who you are, who you know who you are on the inside, you're like, I'm a little boy. I know I'm a little boy that you have to make really, really certain that you never come in contact with anything that might make you look like a girl. And, and that's a huge cost to men, right? Mm -hmm. And it's become sort of a more accepted idea. Uh, I mean, it's even like that is even the foundation that has been sort of twisted into wackiness of like the men's rights movement. Right? Is that like, is that this sucks for men? There's all kinds of gross stuff out there for men, which is absolutely true. And one of the things that I believe about all oppressions is that they all follow the same patterns. So if it's true for one oppression, it's true for all oppressions. Mm -hmm. But what's the equivalent of toxic masculinity for able bodied people? Mm. What's the equivalent for white people? What's the equivalent for? anything right what's the equivalent for non-jewish people like and and if you sort of interrogate each one for able-bodied people if we think about the things that that you and i were just talking about around like calendars and scheduling and like like no one benefits from a super tight schedule yeah. like everyone should have more time off everyone should have like 
you know, a reasonable schedule. Everyone should be able to ask for help. Like those are not, uh, it's like, those are things that if you are able-bodied, you you can probably kind of like work around them. Right. But it sucks. And like the idea that an illness is a weakness, like everyone gets sick. Right. It's actually, it's a, one of the sayings of Buddha is that like, it's of the nature of humans to be ill. Mm. Like by the time you're old enough to say those words, you've been sick a few times. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like, that's how it works. That's like part of living in a body. And the idea that every time you get a cold or an injury, you are less than, that you are less than fully human because you have a cold right now or because you have a wonky ankle or, you know, any, anything that is like, that makes you a target of ableism, that's terrible for everyone. Like it's terrible whether you're on the target side or the non-target side. And so I like, I don't have, I have a little bit of clarity around white people. I don't have any clarity about what it means, what I've lost as a Gentile. Mm. I don't have any clarity. Like places where I'm the target, I know exactly what I've lost as a woman, right? Mm. I know exactly how sexism came down on me. And from the target side, it's very clear to me what men have lost. Mm. Right. I have a very clear view where I'm like, wow, sucks over there. Like, mm-hmm. but places where I'm the non-target, I still have a lot of internal work to do to figure out like, what, what have I lost as a white person? What has, what has the oppression of people of color cost me? Mm-hmm. And that's like, that sounds like a weird question, right? That sounds like a weird selfish, like make it all about me question. But like, it feels to me like this is a place where, like, I, I'm going to say this is like a me, white people, mm-hmm. like, I'm the creator of racism. Therefore, I'm the solution to racism. Yeah, and, and that gets back to some good old-fashioned Baldwin, right? And I'm going to, you know, use a word here that he used because he used it, and I think it's important. Uh, but one of his most famous quotes is, you know, to paraphrase, y'all need to find out why you came up with the word nigger. And... I love that quote because he is stating the problem, but he's stating the, the, the nexus of the solution of the problem. It is not up to black people to fix what white people have done. <laughs> it is in their best interest that it get fixed. <laughs> yes. And some, and some of us are willing to help and we'd appreciate it if you paid us when we did, but <laughs> this is a mess y'all made and it's a mess y'all need to fix. And so from that perspective, while I agree, it does sound weird to say, I need to understand how racism has hurt white people. It's actually important because that's part of the knowledge set you're going to need to fix it. And part of the motivation, frankly, to fix it. Yeah. There's going to be a set of people who are empathetic and want to fix it because I feel guilty, but there's going to be a set of people <laughs> who are like, if you point out what they're losing, and this is good old fashioned loss aversion persuasion, if you point out what somebody's losing, they are much more likely to engage in risky behavior like salary transparency <laughs> than if you than if you tell them, well, look how many people could love you if you weren't such a racist. Like that's a far less uh, <laughs> compelling yeah. argument than you yeah. might think. Well, and also guilt's not like a guilt's not a good. It's not a healthy motivator. Well, no, and it only takes you so far. It's, 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 it's another version of I don't want to get yelled at. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Oh, and you know, white people really don't want to get yelled at. Oh, man. my God. They really don't. <laughs> really don't like getting yelled at. Uh, and I had so, I was in a workshop recently where someone, we were using all kinds of funny little animal metaphors, and someone was supposed to, there was a group that was supposed to come up with uh, an animal metaphor, and the animal they had been assigned was dog. And they were like, okay, you know how when you have a treat for a dog, sometimes they'll just run through every single trick they know to be like, oh, is it this one? Is it lie down? Is it sit? Is it give you a paw? What if it's roll over and twist around twice? And like, they were like, that's like white people. And all the white people in the room were like, oh my God, I feel so seen right now. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, that is a wonderful note to end on. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I, I feel like we could have many more conversations, and, and, I, and I believe that we will. Um, uh, Eileen, is there anything uh, people, if they want to learn more about your work, uh, anywhere they can reach out to you or anything else they should know? Sure. Uh, so my company is called Web Meadow, only one B. Um, and I'm on Twitter under Web Meadow. And if you're interested in any of the events that Nancy hosts, we actually um, – Logist hosts one free event every month. And so actually next week, it's like, you know, it's the 
9th or something like that. Next Wednesday, um, we're hosting a free event that everyone is welcome to join. It's like a Zoom webinar thing about uh, what, what self-care can look like without exploiting other people. Since so much of our self-care is about like manis and petties and like buy this and you'll feel better. It's like capitalism self-care. Uh, so what would it look like if we didn't do that? We're also having a sort of like healing focused gathering the day after the election because no matter what the outcome is, and we probably won't even know what the outcome is at that point, um, people are going to have some feelings, mm-hmm. and this would be a nice place to, it's like a nice, safe, structured place to have some feelings. Um, so if anyone wants to join us for those, we're also having a bunch of workshops and things. You can go to ljist.com, and there's a bunch of things on the events page there. Awesome. Um, I'm, I'm definitely going to make it out to one of the, the workshops these days. These all sound fascinating to me. Um, Eileen Webb, thank you so much. Um, next week, we're going to talk to uh, Mike Montero. Um, I'm going to pop the little uh, link there if you want to sign up for that. I know. I, it's, it's, it's in my contract. I have to talk to him once a year. It's, it's, it's terrible. But uh, So we're going to have that coming up. Uh, thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you, everyone, for coming for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. This is David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time. Thank you.